If you've ever asked yourself how you can get rid of a guilty conscience, have you ever asked that question? Well, I got good news for you. You may not be aware of it, but over 200 years ago, since over 200 years ago, there's a place for thieves with a guilty conscience to return money that they owe to the United States government. Did you know that, Jerry? Did you know that? It's known as the Conscience Fund, and it all began back in 1811 when somebody returned $5 to the U.S. Treasury. It was under the administration of James Madison. And the intent of this fund was to provide uh, relief for people who feel bad about cheating the government. Money can be sent in anonymously. The fund was officially authorized in 1950. It had been around for a long time even then. But, and the Conscience Fund has served as the home for anonymous gifts and remittances and repaying things ever since that time. For one American, admit repaying his debt, he returned nine cents to the U.S. Treasury. For another, admit sending the government $155,502. And of course, we don't know, you know, because it's all anonymous, but thousands of letters and millions of dollars have poured in over all the years. One letter with shaky handwriting was received in 1974. He said, I'm sending $10 for the blanket I stole while I was serving in World War II. My mind cannot rest. I'm sorry, I'm late. It was signed simply an XGI, followed by a postscript, I want to be ready to meet God. Many times the amount is small, but the guilt is big. One Colorado woman sent in two eight-cent stamps to make up for having used one stamp twice that had apparently not been canceled at the post office. Former IRS employee sent in a dollar for four ballpoint pens that she'd never returned to the office. A Salem, Ohio man returned one dollar with the following note. When I was a boy, I put some pennies on the railroad track and the train flattened them. I also used a dime in a silver coating experiment in the grade school, but I now understand that there's a law against defacing money. I want to be a law-abiding citizen. You know, I read that when I felt really bad because me and a buddy, we smashed a whole bunch of pennies on the railroad track. And I wasn't supposed to even be near the railroad track. But anyway, a lot of the stories I tell you, I had to wait for my parents to go home to Jesus because they, they don't know a lot of this stuff. And one man sent in $150 cash admitting that he had cheated on his income tax. And the letter concluded, if I still can't sleep, I'll send in the rest. <laughs> you know, I've, I think most of us probably understand what it is to feel guilty. If you've lived long enough, you've been a Christian a while, and you've just had to deal with life, then you know what it is. Maybe it's anxiety over something that happened maybe 30 years ago. Or maybe it's not regret over smashed pennies on a railroad track or ballpoint pens. But, but we do live in guilt over more serious matters. Broken promises. Stolen property. Wounded relationships. Abused bodies. And we long 
We long for clean conscience. We all want that sense of forgiveness for the past. We all want to be ready to meet God. Well, the Gospel of Luke, which we're looking at today, chapter 23, records the story of a man who desperately needed forgiveness. And in, as we've talked in this series, Jesus made him an offer that he could not refuse. And it's an offer that still stands today. When Jesus was crucified, executed beside him was a thief, actually two thieves, but one thief who knew what guilt felt like. And we don't know how many times this man had stolen. We don't know that. Or from how much or for, from whom. We don't know that. But we do know that here he was hanging between life and death, heaven and hell. And from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 44, we also know that he joined in with the crowd that was mocking Jesus. In fact, the passage says that both of these thieves joined the crowds in their jeering at the Lord. Now, the question is this. What happened? Something's going to have to happen for this thief's heart to change. I mean, how did he move from being sneering? He was sneering at Jesus at the beginning, but in just a matter of hours, he was submitting to Jesus as a source of forgiveness and hope. So let's explore this. There's four things about this thief. There's four significant facts about him that resulted in his forgiveness. And these same four qualities still make Jesus' offer of forgiveness available to you and me today. Number one, he feared God, the Bible says. He feared God. Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God, since we are under the same sentence? You see, the very first step in coming to God is something we don't often want to think about, but it is indeed a necessity. We need to have a healthy fear of the Lord. We need to respect Him. We need to go into His presence with humility. Psalm 11.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we begin by recognizing God is the Creator, and you and I are inferior to Him. Now, God is going to be our judge someday, and we're going to stand accountable to Him. Now, of course, fear is not the highest motive. But it's a beginning motive, and it's very legitimate. I, I feared my father when I grew up. And I mean, it was a healthy fear, I tell you. I figured if I want to stay healthy, I better be careful, you know. He was a disciplinarian, and uh, he, he did not believe in uh, sparing the rod. Remember, what is that? Spare the rod, and what is it? Spoil the child. I want to tell you right now, I was never, ever spoiled. That way, I mean, I did. I, Dad, I tell you, he was a he was committed to my obedience. I wish I could say that I had a healthy respect for him. Uh, I grew up not being very happy with my dad, though we can re we reconciled a lot as time went on. Isn't it funny how when time goes on, you forget a lot of those things? One of my blessed memories was my dad was his, he came all the way to Indiana just to go fishing with me over in Morgan County. 
And uh, we had a great day. And I had no idea that he would, with a matter of a month or two, he would be gone. He died of a heart attack. But God gave us that gift. Oh, how we need to remember that the beginning of wisdom is a healthy fear of the Lord. Now, of course, fear is not the highest motive, but it is a beginning motive. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. You see, once we fully accept God's grace and forgiveness, then our fear gives way to love and trust. However, there are times, even after we become Christians, that our love is not perfect and we are motivated by fear. You know, sometimes I drive the speed limit because I try to be law-abiding. Any other law-abiding people here? We, I was going to say, we've got, we've got someone in the audience here that's paying attention to this. But, um, but anyway, but, you know, other times I drive the speed limit, so I don't have to meet Ryan Miller on the highway someday and have to explain to him why I'm cruising along there faster than I should. You know, in fact, I, I hate to go past his house sometimes. Because I like to take that corner up here a little, kind of zoom on around there, you know, because it's really a mess up there. And you can't really tell exactly what you're supposed to do. I mean, anyway. But, you know, God gives me a reminder of that. I came around that corner not long ago, and Ryan was sitting right down there (laughs) in the cleanest police car I've ever seen in my life. It was just sparkling. And I think that's why he didn't give chase right that moment. He didn't want to get his car dirty, but anyway. But I mean, you know, sometimes we obey God because we love him. Other times we obey God because we've seen the dreadful consequences that come to those who go astray. You see, there's two kinds of sinners in the world, if you really want to categorize them. There's God-fearers, people who live, may live outside of Christ, but they still fear the consequences. And then there are are God sneerers. You know, they just sneer at God. They just kind of, you know, no big deal what they do. You know, they, it's like 1 Kings 16.31 speaks of the wickedness of King Ahab. And oh, what a rascal he was. He had absolutely no fear of judgment. It was no big deal for him to sin. And sin will numb you and me in our consciences eventually if we don't take it seriously. There are people who put their hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth and then lie through their teeth without a twinge of conscience. Hear them all the time on TV. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, that's not even in the sermon. I apologize. There are people who can take God's name in vain and never feel guilty. There are people who can stare death in the eye without even flinching. And none of these are signs of sophistication. None of them are. But rather, it's signs of a terrible depravity, complete depravity. In Romans 3, verse 14, the apostle Paul traced the downward spiral and decay of the Roman Empire. And he wrote these words. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know There is no fear of God before their eyes. And the dying thief asked the other criminal, Don't you fear God, since you know we're going to die? 
Well, evidently not too much at that moment. But as our culture down here becomes increasingly more and more pagan, we are seeing a decreasing sense of guilt. In the prophetic words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 6.15, these words echo down through the halls of history to our very moment when he says, are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen and will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. Sober, sober verse of Scripture. Hmm. You see, as the crudeness and the vile and the abnormal are paraded before the public over and over again, eventually what happens to us is we lose all sensitivity. Familiarity does not breed contempt. It gives birth to acceptance. And it's not long before our moral consciences are just so numb that we just don't have any concerns about what's going on around us. You don't know worry about, you don't worry about right or wrong. It's just a matter of opinion in your mind and heart. And there's no fear of God before our eyes. Her nation used to be a God-fearing nation, but no longer. The church, therefore, needs to be asking the thief's question here. Have we no fear of God? Since one day we're going to stand before him and be accountable. One of my favorite stories is, is a children's allegory by C.S. Lewis called The Chronicles of Narnia. I just love this thing. Even as, as an old guy, I still love to, to watch. I read the, read the books. It's interesting that, that he chose a lion named Aslan to be the representative of Jesus in the story. And everybody felt comfortable with Aslan pretty much, you know, especially the children. And they could run their fingers through his mane and lay their hands on the lion's shoulder and they could ride on the back of the lion and all this. But there was always this little hint of, of fear, or just a little hint that maybe his potential, the potential he had to be ferocious, you know, was right there. In fact, somebody in the, in the book asked the question, is the lion safe? And the answer came back, oh, no, oh, no, he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. God is a God of grace, but he's also a God who pours out wrath on those who disobey his word. And maybe in the church we've emphasized God's safety so much that every now and then we need to, we need to hear him roar. Hebrews 10.31 says, It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that fact alone, that fact ought to bring about a sense of reverence and awe, even among the most hardened of criminals. This criminal feared God. Second fact about him is that he observed Jesus. He observed Jesus. For several hours that day, this man studied our Lord up close and personal. Luke 23, 32 says, Two men, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. So what this says is this. So from Pilate's courtyard, where all this stuff was, was started, all the way to the place of execution. It was a place called the place of the skull. 
And it, uh, if you've gone to Israel with us on our trips, you, they have a place there. I mean, it is creepy. It is a creepy place. And if you stand and look at the rock formation, just the right, kind of does look like a, like a skull there. Still there. Think about that. Still there today. Mm. If you review Luke 23, you can get an idea about what this criminal had witnessed that day. If you kind of go back and look through that chapter, he, he watched a bloody, beaten man unable to carry his own cross. Jesus had been a victim of police brutality of the worst kind. Kicked, slugged, spit upon, mocked, clubbed, scourged within an inch of his life. And evidently, Jesus had been beaten so badly that he didn't have enough energy to carry his own cross the whole way. Verse 26 says, as they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country. And they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, my guess is that what Jesus did not say impressed the thief more than what he could have said. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, 7, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He did not call curses down on his tormentors. And then when they got to the place called the skull, this thief witnessed Jesus being nailed to the cross without protest. He did not try to escape. He didn't try to run away, try to get, get away from these guys. Jesus had said earlier in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. He said, I lay it down on my own accord. And then this thief watched as Jesus' cross was tilted up and then dropped into the socket that was made for the cross with a thud. That thief had already felt the excruciating moment before the pain shot through his entire body. I mean, everybody cursed when that happened. Everybody except Jesus. He cried out. But it was not for God to damn his executioners. No, the first recorded words out of the mouth of Jesus Christ was Luke 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And this thief hanging nearby had to be impressed. He had to be with the incredible composure and restraint of that man from Galilee. He saw forgiveness in those eyes, something he'd never seen before. This thief saw a man who tolerated constant harassment, even while going through one of the most horrendous and agonizing deaths that ever been designed. Verse 35 said, the rulers sneered at him. Oh, how we hate it when people sneer or rejoice over our defeat. These religious rulers said, oh, you saved others. You know, they mocked him. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. I mean, really, if you have any decency, you don't kick a man when he's down, especially when he's dying. But these wicked rulers had allowed jealousy to fester for so long, their mouths were overflowing with the contents of their hearts. And verse 36 tells us that even the soldiers who also came up and mocked him. 
and they offered him wine vinegar. You know, this was kind of like a sedative. And the thief watched as Jesus refused to take drugs to ease the agony. And verse 37 tells us the soldier said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 38 also adds that there was written notice placed above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. They were just mocking him. It seems that everyone's attacking our Lord Jesus while he's at his lowest moment. And this thief saw all this. He watched all of this. And he observes what Peter would write about in 1 Peter 2.23 when he says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And several hours after observing and watching the behavior of Jesus under the most severe pressure, convinced this thief this was no criminal. Indeed, this must be the Messiah. I mean, he wasn't alone in his faith. The centurion who was overseeing the execution of the whole affair and most likely had witnessed dozens of executions, even he came to the conclusion when Jesus breathed his last, he said, surely, surely this was the Son of God. Now, even if you're not a believer, you have to be impressed. You've got to be impressed with Jesus. You've got to be intrigued by the person of Christ. His followers said, never a man spoke like this man. His enemy said, we can't deny this man performs miracles. His judge even said, I find no fault with him. And his executioner said, this man is the son of God. And the man who died closest to him and observed this for a period of hours, he said, this man's not done anything wrong. You see, friends, Christians may let you down. Your church may fail you. But Jesus never fails. And the dying thief feared God. He observed Jesus very carefully. And then number three, the thing about this thief that's to be noticed is he admitted his guilt. He admitted his guilt. Verse 41, he said, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Wow, it's rare that you can get a criminal to admit any kind of guilt. It seems like everybody claims they're innocent. And we do, we do pretty much the same. I read of a little boy who saw a big dog outside his front window. And he ran and said to his mom, 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 there's a lion out in front of the house. And his mom said, there's no lion out there. But he still claimed it. He protested. He said, it's a lion. Mother came and looked out there and said, now you know that that's just a big dog and you've been lying all this time, so you go upstairs and confess your sin to God. After a while, he came back down. His mother said, did you tell God that you were lying about the lion? Yes, I did, he said very meekly. Well, what did God say? Well, God said that when he first saw it, he thought it was a lion himself. How hard it is for 
That never happens in our, our children's department, of course. No, never does. What a difficult time we have admitting our sin. It's rare that we're able to say along with this criminal, you know, I messed up, I'm guilty. It's not my brother, not my sister. No, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's hard to say that. And one of the things you and I have to do to receive Christ's offer of forgiveness is to admit our guilt. Not to gloss it over, don't make light of it, but simply admit like the thief on a cross, I'm guilty. Now here's a key principle. The closer that you and I get to the perfection of Jesus Christ, the more we'll become aware of our own imperfections. The more you're in Scripture, the more you read the Gospels, the more you pay attention to the Bible, the more you will have a right view of yourself. You'll see yourself clearly. The closer you get to the holiness of Christ, you'll be aware of your need for forgiveness, your total dependence on Jesus. But when people say things like, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm not a serial killer. I'm not as bad as other people. When they say that, it reveals that they haven't been within arm's distance of the perfectness of Christ. They've just not been there. This thief dying on the cross feared God. He observed Jesus. He admitted his sin. One more thing about him I want you to know. He requested forgiveness. He requested forgiveness. Verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, now think about this for a moment. Here was a man who knew very little theology. <laughs> he only knew there was something special about Jesus. He knew that Jesus had claimed to be a king. He knew he claimed to be the Messiah. Now, his kingdom was not of this world. He claimed all those things. He had only a few moments yet to live. He could not offer up any good works. He could not get loose from being fastened to a Roman cross to do anything. He had no time to live a clean life. He had no time to get his act together. He had no time whatsoever to give Jesus any money. He as much said, Jesus, if you're going to save me, hear me, he said, Jesus, if you're going to save me, you're going to have to do the whole thing. I can't offer you anything. I can't give you a thing. I have nothing to offer you except my need. I love what Max Licato wrote. He said, no one would have given a prayer that day, but that was all this thief had. And in the end, that was all he needed. And that was enough. For in that moment, a lifetime of moral debt was canceled. And Jesus made him an offer he could never refuse. He answered him in saying, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, paradise refers to the dwelling place of the dead. It's a state where departed spirits uh, kind of wait for their final confirmation, I guess, if you put it that way, and putting on new glorified bodies if they're Christians. But this thief is going to be with Jesus in paradise, it says. It says that he's going to be there. This meant that his lifetime of sin was forgiven the moment he requested it of Jesus. Jesus said, you're going to be with me today. He didn't have to go to some imaginary place called purgatory where you get purged from your sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I mean, that's right there. 
And when Jesus died, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he said to this thief on the cross, today, brother, you're going to be with me in paradise. And in that moment, Jesus performed the greatest miracle of the cross. The greatest miracle was not when the sun turned dark, which it did. At high noon, it was pitch dark. It was not when the earth shook, which it did. It was not when the curtain in the temple was ripped down the center from top to bottom. The greatest miracle was not even when some of the tombs were open. This was wild. And a number of holy people came back to life. No, the greatest miracle of the cross was when Jesus made an offer to this sinful thief that he couldn't refuse. He performed the miracle of forgiveness on this man who had nothing, nothing to give back to him. And Jesus washed that sin away. Here was a sin-hardened criminal, completely cleansed by the blood-stained Savior. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can burst or can boast. Ken Geyer wrote, incredible when you think about it, amidst the humiliating abuse of the crowd and excruciating pain of the cross, Jesus was still about his father's business. And in that last moment of death, he was telling a common thief about the uncommon riches of heaven. Years ago, a young preacher was invited to a music concert in a prominent London home. A young lady was singing, <clears throat> and she played so beautifully. Everybody was just so enthralled with her singing. But after the concert, the preacher made his way over to her through the crowd, found her, introduced himself, and he said to her these words. As you were singing, I just could not help but thinking about how God could use your talent to bless so many people. <laughs> if you would dedicate your talent to him, there's no limit to what he will do. And then he added this, but you know, we're all sinners. There's not much difference between us and the drunk on the street or the prostitute on the corner. We're all sinners by the blood of Jesus, but that blood of Jesus can forgive and cleanse our sins and then he can use us. And in a prideful tone, the woman, her name was Charlotte Elliott, she said to him, you're offending me. You're offending me. And she stomped off. But late that night, Charlotte Elliott could not sleep because the words of that preacher kept coming back to her ears. We're all sinners, you know, and only the blood of Jesus Christ can forgive and cleanse our sins. And finally, at 2 o'clock in the morning, she gets up, got out of bed, she got down on her knees, and she prayed, Lord Jesus, I, I confess to you that I am a sinner. Would you forgive my sin? I want to make you Lord of my life. And then still unable to sleep, she wrote the words to a song that we have sung many times. We're going to sing it here in a moment. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come.
I come. And the same grace that was offered to Charlotte Elliott and that thief on the cross is available to you this morning. You have only to repent of your sins, confess your faith in Christ, accept his offer of salvation, and be baptized unto him.